Hey, song surfers, welcome to Song Surfing. It's your friend John. Song Surfing is a bi weekly playlist of independent music pulled from the far reaches of the internet. And it's part of the Live from the Lincoln Lodge podcast network. Head over to thelincolnlodge.com to explore the other shows on the network and learn more about the venue that's home to the nation's longest running independent comedy showcase. If you're just checking out Song Surfing for the first time, you should know that the the regular format for the show involves me playing a selection of tunes where I, I talk positively about each one, so I play DJ. Occasionally, though, there's a guest that comes on, and those are labeled as Song Surfing with Friends. And I'm really excited about the friend who's joining us today. Dan Hall is a London born and bred TV and film producer whose recent production, Freddie Mercury, The Final Act, just became available on BBC Two. Dan also has a podcast called In the Key of Q, which features conversations with queer musicians from around the world. And that's actually how I got to know Dan a little bit, was we uh, did some cross promotion for our, our two shows, both sort of having the music discovery angle. I thought uh, we both thought it was a good fit. And Dan is going to be playing some tunes by some of the artists featured on In the Key of Q. Dan Hall, welcome to Song Surfing. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here. So in case the listeners haven't checked out In the Key of Q, what's it all about? It's basically about finding new musicians. Uh, As a youngster, I always loved music and still do now as an adult. And I was always very saddened by the fact that I didn't really see any of my own queer identity reflected back at me. This was back in the 80s and 90s, so I'm 48 now. So, And there really was very little queer visibility. Uh, and where there was, it, it was brilliant, but it was generally very political, and that was all there was, because we had to fight a lot of politics. We still do. But the podcast was really about helping other people find queer voices and queer music, because it's not mainstream. It generally isn't mainstream. We get people like Little Nas X, but they are the exception. And music... Boy, music is such a good way to not feel alone in the world. So really, the podcast is about doing that. Yeah, excellent. So when you got started with the podcast, did you know some of the artists or were you just reaching out to just people you were fans of? How did you go about getting your early guests? It was a mixture of both, really. So some of the early artists were friends. So, for example, Paul Leonidu, who is a composer and singer who did our theme tune, he's a friend of mine. And in fact, I've just recorded his his interview as a guest. Aaron Duval, who is our episode three, is a good friend of mine and neighbor as well. So they were they were relatively easy because uh, I had a separate relationship with them. But most of them, such as Matt Fischel, Ty McKinney, these are people whose music I was already enjoying. And I reached out to them and they thankfully said yes. Yeah, that's awesome. One thing I've been experiencing doing song surfing is, you know, you have artists and bands that you're a fan of. And then, I don't know, it's like extra special to be able to help spread the word about <laughs> about their music. And sometimes, you know, you, you become friendly with them, too, which is a nice bonus. Absolutely. And it's, it is lovely to be able to say to people, I really respect and like what you do. With Paul Leonidu and the interview I've just recorded with him, I, I realized I'd maybe never said it quite as obviously as that to him. And it was just so lovely seeing him hear that, hear a friend of his say, you make beautiful music. And I really, really respect and appreciate that. It's, it's lovely to be able to say that to these people. As a music, musician myself, and maybe this is just a thing, you know, that's just part of my personality or whatever, but I find accepting praise difficult. <laughs> and I wonder if, uh, I wonder if other artists feel that way as well. John, I think you're living in the wrong country. You sound like you're British. You know, I, think, <laughs> I think you should just move to Britain where we are appalling at taking any kind of compliment. We really are. It's a, it's a country trait. So maybe you should pack your bags and come over here. You'll, you'll be amongst kin. Yeah, I was, I was born a couple, th- a couple thousand miles off of where I should have been born, perhaps. <laughs> All right, so you're a music enthusiast. Have you, uh, enthusiast. Do you play music? Are you a musician? Only to so much that uh, when I was a kid, my parents took me to piano lessons, and I, I enjoyed the piano, but I was never particularly brilliant at it. I sort of got about halfway and then discovered Stock Aiken and Waterman and Madonna and then, and then stopped practicing. So, But I learned enough music thankfully that I appreciate the difference between a major key and a minor key and I love harmonies quite how and why they work the way they do I'm not I'm not educated or intelligent enough to understand so 
generally for me, music is something that's just a visceral reaction. And almost always it's a positive visceral reaction, regardless of the genre. Yeah. So you, you listen for what you like about the song. I know we talked about that when I stopped in on In the Key of Q. Right, finding finding the positive aspects of the music. Absolutely, and there is almost always something, be it the production or the turn of a melody or a bit of production in terms of how the producers put the put the piece together. There is almost always something intriguing and, and celebratory about a piece. Uh, and oddly, the the three pieces that I've chosen today have all got very different elements that that super jumped out at me and appealed to me. And I think even if we listen to songs that drive us crazy we're like oh i can't hear that one again there's almost always something fresh that jumps out if you if you listen to a piece with clean ears you know one thing that i've i've been enjoying lately is going back to a song that i originally didn't give a chance when i was younger because it was popular Mm -hmm. And 20 years after the fact, going, oh, that, that's what's awesome about this song. That's why everyone liked it. That's such a good idea, because you're right. There comes a tipping point, isn't there, where a song is so big that one just becomes averse to it. And it probably does take about two decades to, to cleanse that relationship with it and revisit it. So who were some of your favorite artists growing up when you really started to get obsessed with music? I was a real Stock Aitken and Waterman baby. So Stock Aitken and Waterman were uh, an independent record label, distributor, PR. They did it all. They kind of did everything at a time when labels, unless they were majors, didn't really do that. And they produced what was considered to be pretty low-ranked pop. You know, a real, real wheel the artist in, get him to sing the lines and wheel them out again. But I found that superficiality very comforting i was a closeted teenager um i was lucky i lived in a kind of liberal middle class background a middle class household but still you know it's not it's not easy being a gay kid and 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 hiv aids was just everywhere and it was all terrifying and so for me music was a place just to escape i didn't really want to listen to clever lyrics about hardship uh i just wanted <laughs> to disappear so i listened to a lot of a lot of that but at the same time in contrast to that i was loving music like a, a female singer called elkie brooks who has a wonderful croaky voice and she had a single out in i think 86 called no more the fool which is just beautiful and the print the pretenders brought out him to her which again was a was a great great track and so really the music was all over the place because I'd grown up with music in my house all the time. So mum was always playing Rod Stewart or Barbara Streisand or, you know, I, I do maintain that it's probably my mum who made me gay, you know, with all that, all that, all that <laughs> Streisand playing in my house when I was growing up. But it was, it was always a musical house. So really, although I listened to, to certain artists myself that I had chosen, I just as much enjoyed listening to other music from the house you know my brother who's five years older than me really shaped my musical taste you know he was always playing soft cell early pet shop boys depeche mode people like that and i still love those artists now still do so he was a huge influence on me you just you know hearing that music through the wall it's great was he actively giving you like here check this out giving you cassettes or what or mixtapes whatever not really but it just we, as you might have gathered for me, we were quite a, quite a loud household, so you know, doors were always <laughs> open, and he was never a brother who would exclude me from the room. He wouldn't mind if I walked in and said, oh, I really like that, can you play that again? So it sort of wasn't really needed. It was just, you know, he was a bit of a, bit of a selector in the house. So the tunes that you selected today, was there a common thread? How did you go about choosing them? I wanted to pick something that was really genuine, that was music I had genuinely enjoyed and genuinely liked. And by picking artists who had appeared on my podcast, the very nature that they were in my podcast meant that I had sought out their music and liked it. And to me, it was music because I wasn't coming with any presumptions, really. I don't particularly know what their marketing is like or anything like that. So it was very much based on the music. And so I felt that by picking these three artists, it was, it was really genuine. It was, I, I had read somewhere that once we hit 25 or something like that, or 30, we very rarely find new music and we tend just to listen to the music we already know. And the nature of In the Key of yeah. Q, one of the reasons I do it is because 
it forces me to go out and find new music. And and I found something I love about all the artists that I, I produce uh, who guested on In the Key of Q. But these ones particularly just jumped out at, for some reason, hitting that hitting that a heart uh, a little bit faster than some of the other ones had done. First, we'll be hearing a song by Brendan McLean. We'll be listening to Hugs Not Drugs or both. Yeah, so Brendan, Brendan is a fantastic performer uh, from Australia who just has a really great sex-positive attitude. I, I like how... I, I tend to get very grumpy and angry when people are sex negative, whereas I think Brendan deals with it in a much better way, that he has humor and wit. Uh, and that is always hugely helped by being able to write really catchy pop. And I think this is not only a great song about about just getting laid, flirting in bars, you know, and it's, it's it sounds daft, but... As queer people, we kind of didn't really have these. We didn't have playgrounds and high schools and proms. Well, certainly at my age that we could go to. And so it's lovely hearing songs that are about these things. But it's also not too worthy. I love how Brendan's just like, do you know what? If It doesn't matter what message I'm giving with this song. If you're not humming it by the second chorus, I failed. And so <laughs> you, you, you hear it and it's super, super catchy. So I love this one. Yeah, that's important, right? Like the, the the melody or there has to be some kind of hook that grabs you as much meaning as the song has. You know, you got to have that other element too. Totally, totally. So, all right, here's what Brendan said. Hugs Not Drugs was one of the first songs I wrote for Fun Bang. I wrote it on the ukulele and took it to a producer named Stuart, uh, Stuart Stewart, who had worked with the Veronicas. We made this and another that didn't make the record. It's all my teen angst rock jammed into one glorious track. And then here's a bit from Brendan's bio. Brendan McLean is a queer singer-songwriter from uh, uh, Sydney, Australia, who first made his mark with his unsuspecting ukulele gem, Stupid, in 2013. Soon after its release, Brendan was signed to Universal Publishing, where he wrote his first record, the electro-pop party album Fun Bang One, including the singles Hugs Not Drugs, Free to Love, and House of Air. The music's video for its final single caused international controversy and acclaim with New Yorker's Vulture magazine, naming it number three on their top 10 for 2017. So we're going to hear two songs in this first block. Uh, We'll start off with Brendan McLean's Hugs Not Drugs, or both. And then we'll go into Carrington Kelso's tune, Come Over. So, Dan, I'll, I'll see you in a minute after we listen to these tunes and we'll talk some more. Lovely. I look myself in the eye and wonder when. I look myself in the eye and wonder when. Am I getting it together? Lord, it's been forever since it felt right. Yeah, I look myself in the eye and wonder when I called my mother, my father, and a friend Have you got it all together? Lord, it's been forever since it felt right I felt right We want hugs, not drugs, or both If it's available, I'll take two And you under the table Let's both get drunk and forget the rest, yeah I look myself in the eye and wonder when I look myself up online and I that my thoughts are pretty clever Photos looking better in a red light huh. Premeditated, debated, bitter ends I get distracted and then I start again Am I getting it together? Lord, it's been forever since I felt right
Hey, song surfers, we are back. I'm here with Dan Hall of In the Key of Q. Hello there. Hey, so Dan, good choices on these tunes. We just listened to Brendan McLean's Hugs Not Drugs, followed by Carrington Kelso's Come Over. So I discovered Carrington through looking at some queer playlists uh, when I was researching for my podcast, and his voice is something else. I mean, really, I could, I could listen to that man sing just anything there's there is a a texture in his voice that just floors me i find it joyous just to listen to him sing if you then add on to that the fact that he is a skilled songwriter and the songs that he sings to are great then it's just blistering and i really liked come over because it was whereas brendan mclean's songs about sort of sex and and sex positivity were, were kind of bumpy and a bit and a bit fun. Carrington's feel more adult. And they're not adult as in they're they're sleazy or they're shaming or they're or they're even particularly political. They're just that it's just a really realistic song about being a bit horny. And you you add into that he's he's produced something and delivers a vocal that that just feels really adult. And I think that there are not many songs about sex period be they for gay people or straight people or bi people or whatever there aren't that many songs about sex that sort of feel like the person who's singing them kind of knows what they're talking about 
and 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 Carrington's song I really feel does that well and so with it comes and I think maybe that's why it doesn't feel salacious or seedy or then because it just feels like it's from a place of authenticity and for any artist singing any kind of music I think once the audience feel that you are being authentic you're you're halfway there and I really really feel that with with Carrington's stuff and and added on top of that he is a wonderful person to interview and intelligent incredibly sensitive man just just a joy to interview yeah awesome so here's a bit from carrington kelso's bio carrington kelso is a black queer storyteller who leaves it all on the stage when he performs his sound has been described by listeners as something you have to hear a beautiful blend of pop r&b soul and electronic his passion can be heard in every lyric every note and then Carrington sent this over about the song. Come Over is a song about lust and liberation. For decades, queer people have been over-sexualized, shamed, and treated as other because we don't fit into the mold of the status quo. I wanted to write a song that leans into the yearning of wanting another person's touch, for me specifically, a man's touch. Yeah, and you, you know, Dan, I, I'm thinking about uh, queer portrayals in movies and in TV, and I feel like only until like the last couple of years have I seen, you know, like a man kissing a man is just portrayed as just a normal relationship without it being, you know, something that's sensational. Completely. I think I think you're absolutely right. And there's an element of let's get queer love and sex and affection. Let's get it off HBO and, and on. Let, let's not make it salacious. Let's, let's just just kind of show it. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct until really quite recently well, for a while we were invisible and then we had to be the comedian and then we had to be the gay best friend. Uh, you know, for a while we were only allowed into shows when we could be the, the sort of noble person dying of HIV AIDS. And it's, it is nice. It does feel like we're starting to turn a bit of a space now where those, those things are a little bit more visible. Um, and hope maybe one day we're, we're allowed to have a, a boring gay character who doesn't go to the gym because that's who I could identify with. <laughs> right. And I think an important thing to say in this is it's very easy in these discourses to make it sound like uh, it's, it's queer people attacking heterosexual people or heteronormative culture. In my experience, and in fact, um, Samson McCormick talks about this in our Black for America special on, on the Keep Key podcast, that often the, the people who are silencing us are not the straight community, it's the gay community. You know, there's nothing quite as toxic as a self-hating gay man. And uh, so I think it's important to recognize that often our, our enemy is, in fact, within. It's not the straight culture at all. So let's talk about your movie. Ah, yes. Thank you very much. That's nice for a bit of promotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since, we, since I started the podcast, I, uh, I produced uh, a feature film about, the, uh, about Freddie Mercury. But effectively, we're talking about uh, the HIV AIDS experience and homophobia told through the lens of Freddie Mercury's final years. Uh, and I made that with a wonderful, wonderful director called James Rogan, who has an incredible track record producing or directing content that is just about social justice, really. Just about trying to make things better for people that have had it a little bit shitty. And James and his executive producer, Saluta Rogan, have really produced an amazing body of work. Uh, they're a company called Rogan Productions, and they continue to do so. So it was great producing this film with them, because they really got what the ambitions for the show for the film really were. And that was, as with all good ideas, James and I, James is also a friend of mine, James and Saluta are both friends, and James and I happened to be talking about COVID in the middle of our first lockdown. I think we were out for a walk or something like that in our hour-long walk we could do. And I'd said to him, well, James, this is the second pandemic I've lived through. <laughs> and he was like, what? I said, like, yeah, James, people were dying. You know, our bars would empty because all of their customers had died. And he was just a bit, wow. Then that kind of turned into doing something with the Freddie Mercury story because... There's also the thing of there's no point in making a program about the HIV AIDS pandemic that I'm going to watch or that the queer audiences are going to watch or only the queer audiences will watch because kind of they know it. But if you can present it through a lens that maybe a wider audience might like and you get people that you wouldn't expect to have on an HIV AIDS film like Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, who was brilliant. I mean, he gave such 
uh, an enthusiastic and genuine interview. And then you, you have people like him, and you have people like Paul Young and Lisa Stansfield, and of course, Brian Main and Roger Taylor. Then you get a wider audience listening in, and it was a real pleasure to, to do that, because to me, it brought together two things I'm passionate about, which is uh, fighting HIV stigma. I've, you know, I've done that all my life, uh, but also music, and realizing how brilliant Freddie was, kind of rediscovering that rediscovering what an amazing man he was, what an amazing performer. And hearing Brian May talk about how Freddie downed a couple of vodkas and propped himself up in the agony of the Carposi sarcoma that was destroying his body and still managed to deliver the lyrics for The Show Must Go On, the vocals for that. I mean, wow. It's incredible. Incredible. It makes chills go down my spine. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was great. And that just premiered recently on the BBC. Uh, I'm not quite sure what, channel that's going out on America, it might have already come out there, but it certainly is going to have an American premiere at some point. I think it just came out like a day before we're recording. So this would be the, ah, fantastic. the second week of December. Lovely. That that would make sense. And, you know, I advise listeners to uh, get their tissues because there are some challenging bits in it, some incredibly brave contributors outside the world of celebrity telling very, very personal stories. And, and we're so, so grateful to them for opening up these these lovely, kind, kind people, sharing their difficulties and helping to help us all understand a bit better. So I was very proud to, to have worked on that. So you were the producer. So what day to day, like what sort of stuff did you do as the producer? It's in a way, my job as producer is to try to make happen what James's directorial vision is. So that can be from persuading stars to be interviewed in the program to making sure that legal things are done that people that other members of the team are doing the legal stuff properly it's it's just spinning all the plates to make sure that i can do the very best i can so that james is able to achieve what he wants to achieve as a director ideally without spending too much money and also making sure it's delivered, uh, that we deliver to the BBC what they had wanted in the first place and make sure that the programme treats everybody with respect. We interviewed Freddie's sister in it, and he's he's not a celebrity to her. He's her brother. Right. So one of the roles of a producer is just to make sure that everything, everything is respectful and everything is good. But ultimately, it's... Uh, James very much would do that as well. It's really for me to try to... James might come in and go, hey, I, I heard there is a weird bit of interview with some crazy pastor from 1985. Could you see if you can find it? <laughs> and the producer would then go, right, you know, let's see if we can find that or it could be doing a bit of firefighting. The job just changes every single day. But, you know, on Freddie, we made that through in the middle of COVID and we were doing face-to-face -face interviews. So we really had to have a very small team. So... The producer and the assistant producer, my fantastic colleague, um, Georgina, uh, Georgina Lewis, we had to wear multiple hats. So we also did the camera and the sound and the lighting and the graphics wow. because, you know, under COVID, you really want as few bodies as possible in any one room. Yeah, I'm sure that changed a, a lot of the ways that you, I mean, as it did with everyone's job, right? But changed a lot mm. of the ways you did things and looked at things. It did. and But, you know, one of the really positive, one of the, more challenging things, it's exhausting. It's exhausting being producer, but also doing camera work and also doing all the other bits. But on the positive side, it really makes you reach out to your team members more. That that we had a tiny team making this, but we would all of us get exhausted at different times and, and hold each other up. There's kind of nowhere to hide. And what that really ultimately means is you have a very close production team who all really care and who all really look out for each other. And I think it shows actually in the program. I think you can tell that it's a tight team who like each other and who care, who really, really care about what they're trying to say. What was something that you learned from this experience? This is the, the first movie that you'd produced, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the first full length movie I produced. I think I learned to trust stories that if a story is there, that it will bubble to the top. The director on the show, James Rogan, doesn't tend to really work much with scripts in terms of he'll have a, an overall idea of the key themes and what he'd ideally like to achieve. But he's not afraid to just kind of let, let the source bubble and bubble and bubble and reduce and just see what comes out. And if the natural 
gravity of a situation or the natural gravity of, of a tale slightly pulls the film in this direction, he'll let the film go there, which is why you end up with his, with his movies and his television programs. They just feel like such rich sources. They're incredible. He's, he's just finished co-directing a, a series uh, called Uprising with the, uh, with the Oscar winner Steve McQueen. And you can see James's style in that. You can see his influence in that. You can see again that sense of the bubbling of, of, of the sources and the reduction of all the waste just to reveal these amazing narratives underneath. So if I learned anything, it was what James has, has really taught me, and that is to have faith in, in stories. And, and also, if I'm honest, also what Salita Rogan, one of the executive producers, taught me, and that was to have faith in myself. Because uh, when she asked me to do this, I was like, I've never produced a movie before. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. And she was just like, you can do it. Why don't you stop doubting yourself and go and make a movie? <laughs> and she was right. So I learned also big thanks to Salita for uh, teaching me to have more faith in myself as well. So that's the other lesson I learned. Yeah, she saw that in you. So I'm wondering now that you've uh, had this experience, is it going to change any of how you approach the podcast? Interestingly, I had always approached the podcast a little bit vaguely and that I didn't like to over-research my guests. I would do the basics in terms of find out um, what albums they had done so I could pre-write the introductions. But beyond that, I would just let it go where it was going to go. What I think is going to change a little bit more in the podcast is I would have more confidence now to push on a difficult subject. Um, what I have changed in the podcast is, interestingly, you do exactly the same thing, and that is I will now say, because I'm going to be pushing subjects that might be difficult, I do say at the beginning of the recording, this podcast is edited. So if we go, you can feel free to go anywhere, because if you do go somewhere, then you decide not to do it. You can tell me we won't put that in. Yeah. Interestingly, no one has said that yet, but I think just giving people that freedom to open up is important. But also the film made me aware that I do also need to be aware that there are listeners and to be aware of what questions might they be asking. Somebody responds to something, I can't just let it go and then ask the standard question next that I've got on the list. That if I feel the gravity of the conversation is moving, then I need to go with it. I interviewed Jade Starr, a musician and YouTuber, and she's a great interviewer. And we were talking about you know, how she's learned how to interview and what her process is. And she said that she looks at it as um, if the guest brings up something, they're, they're giving you the green light to talk about it, <laughs> right? Even if it's something that's a little bit personal or a direction that you might not have normally plunged into or might have been uh, trepidatious about plunging into. If they're bringing it up, then it's a, it's a go-ahead if you'd like to take that and run with it. That was nice to hear and got me thinking about things in a little bit of a different way. And that sounds like what you're saying too now. Completely. And I think that we can have more confidence in ourselves to be able to think of questions. You know, the first few episodes have been the key of Q I did. I did copious notes on the guests and, and you know, Matt Fischel, Ty McKinney, Aaron, all of them. And it ended up stifling the recordings. And I always found myself abandoning the notes after about 20 minutes. <laughs> Because you spend so much time looking at the notes and trying to make sure you say everything that you're not really listening to what they're saying. I would like at some point to revisit certainly the guests, the first few guests I had so that I can interview them now with my improved, improved uh, interview hat on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just have a part two. Yeah, absolutely. I'll wait till they get a new album out and then drag them back. Yeah. <laughs> Before the documentary, um, had you'd been working in TV? Yeah, I had. So I'd been uh, assistant producing. Uh, I did a show called American Aristocrats. Uh, we were working on season two of that uh, in the middle of COVID. We were just about to start filming, actually. Um, and unfortunately, the show then got, got cancelled, literally like two or three weeks before we were going to start filming. But that, was, that came on the back of me working on a show uh, for Nutshell TV called Share the Loneliest Elephant, which we made in deepest, deepest COVID, like the really early days when the whole world was in madness. And that was with Cher, flying Cher out to Pakistan to go and rescue an elephant. So wow. that was, like, literally, you wouldn't think it, would you? Like, oh, hey, I'm, hey, I'm going to go and work on a show where Cher rescues an elephant from Pakistan in the middle of a global pandemic. But, yeah, it was... <laughs> 
kind of a wild <laughs> premise for a show. It is, isn't it? So yeah, but I've done all sorts of things in, in TV. Uh, done worked in business affairs and worked on the commercial side of stuff and distribution. So it's been it's been a really really varied career. But I've probably not had more like my on screen credits have suddenly just really really taken off. Uh, that's been four shows since since COVID. So it's um, it's very much feels like it's uh, some exciting things are happening. And I really hope that the knowledge I'm getting from that feeds into the production of of the podcast. Yeah, I think it probably all works together, right? Just the the collection of the, the whole of all your experience. Absolutely, it does. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons James and Salita got me into the Freddy movie was because they, big being the good friends they are, they, I imagine, listen to the podcast and they could hear my interview technique. And we knew that during the production period, both of them were going to have to be away for about four weeks. So Myself and my fantastic assistant producer, Georgina Lewis, we're going to have to fly solo and do the interviews ourselves. And I'm sure In the Key of Q helped me do those interviews. I'd obviously watched James and saw how he interviewed, but also knew how, to some extent, how to interview people myself, because I'd already made over 30 episodes of Key of Q by then. And now it's going the other way. Now the Freddy film has taught me how to interview better, back on the podcast. So you're absolutely right. It's uh, they feed each other. Yeah. Whenever I take on a new project, whether it's uh, when I got into songwriting or just different things I try in, in teaching, I, I always am for some reason, even though I've had this experience so many times, I'm amazed that the stuff I learned with that new experience influence the way I did other things. And I'm always, you know, like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And then I'm always kicking myself for not trying more stuff. But you know what? Give yourself a break because you're not calcifying, <laughs> which is the other easy thing to do, just to calcify and just carry on with what what works well enough. And so I think you should give yourself a recognition for pushing forward and changing and learning and we could always do it faster but there's only so many hours in the day and you've got to keep aside some time to have a coffee yeah that, that is true so one thing that i do on the episodes when i have songwriters in is they share a songwriting tip or two um, but i thought it would be neat if you had a, a production tip if there's anything that you think would help people who are just generally doing any sort of creative thing whether it's a podcast or writing or making music, YouTube series? I think it would be to care about whatever it is you're trying to say because creating content is exhausting and it takes time and chances are you're not going to make any money out of it. So you've got to get something out of it. So let it be about something you care about. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you have to, the passion has to be what's driving it, right? Completely, completely. And, and In the Key of Q came out of simply thinking, oh, I don't really want people to feel alone in the world. I love music and I find it really easy talking to people I don't know. So it's like, well, why not do a podcast about queer musicians so that people can discover music and not feel alone in the world? And it's, I'm sure you had a similar thing where it suddenly seems so obvious. Why did I think of this 15 years ago? Yeah, well, I think there's something special about podcasts. It's just so intimate. And I, I love the podcasts that are just started off as somebody, you know, making it out of their bedroom mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than, you know, Conan O'Brien or some established celebrity getting, you know, deciding like, oh, I need a new project to do. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I like the intimate nature of them. And I think it was Mark Marin had put it in a way where he said like podcasts, you can be like a friend in the night to somebody who needs it. That's a lovely way of putting it. And for me, it was, um, I got into them uh, when I was going through a divorce, right? And there were just a lot of, a lot of lonely nights there where I needed to feel, I needed to feel some uh, human company of some mm. form, right? And I, I think that your podcast is doing that for some people too. Yeah. And it's lovely to see the podcast be downloaded in countries that I know have really poor attitudes towards gay people. And, and I think all that, that actually matters a lot. Like it's great getting a download in London but getting downloads in Jamaica that have systemically homophobic governments, that's important. That's, that's someone sitting alone or some people sitting alone and thinking, this is difficult for me, but there are other ways to live and hopefully I can have those lights and those freedoms one day. You're not alone. Yes, yeah, 
completely. And it's such an important thing, isn't it? Not to feel alone. Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, let's come back to the music. We're going to hear a song by Matt Fischel. Matt Fischel is a British singer, songwriter, music producer, and record label owner. He plays guitar, piano, bass, and keyboard. Grew up in Nottingham in the East Midlands in the late 90s, going on to study music and performing arts at Paul McCartney's Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts in the early 2000s, before moving to London, where he currently lives. After several years of being advised by music industry execs to remove all gay content from his work for commercial appeal, but always believing in a more honest alternative route in which he could remain true to himself, Matt decided to do things his own way. In 2010, wishing to retain creative control over his artistic output, Matt launched his own record label, Young Lust Records, which he runs from his London studio. This creative freedom has enabled him to manage and oversee his projects and to collaborate with a number of exciting artists and creators from around the globe. All right, so we're going to listen to the song Soldiers. So why did you choose this one? What do you like about it? I liked it because I, I very much fought in, in queer rights and fighting queer stigma and HIV stigma all my life, uh, all my adult life since the early 90s. And I do sometimes feel as if the work that is done standing outside Parliament, shouting at MPs, forcing legal change, sort of is a bit forgotten sometimes. And I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't do it so that people would recognise it. That's not why we did it. But it does, it, it sometimes feels like I would like us as a queer community to sometimes talk a little bit less about music or, or fashion and just recognize a little bit more about what has been done in order to help fight stigma and fight shame. And I'm standing on the shoulders of some amazing people who came before me, some amazing guys and women who really forced change. And this song has a lot of that rage in it. And I really, I think it's a, it's a beautiful song about grief about it's a there's a personal song of, of matt's about a, a friend of his about an ex-partner of his who fought who's a soldier on the front line who, who sort of marched and fought for rights and and the song's kind of rocky it has a rock feel to it it's uh and that again that's a genre a heavy guitar rock feel and that's a genre or a style that's not really that associated with queer music and i don't know why it should be <laughs> but but it's it isn't, and so it, it defies expectations a bit, but also its subject matter is is important because it's about recognizing our, our difficult heritage in places, and I do think we need to recognize as queer people where we have come from in order to understand where we still need to go, and I think this song does that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've liked all the tunes that you selected, but this one really, really clicked with me. I mean, the the, the message behind it, but it's got an awesome voice. <laughs> like, it's really, uh, yeah. just really a, a fun song to listen to. And I, I'm looking forward to checking out more of his stuff. Yeah. He's an incredible songwriter. Like, he really is. He could just, I, I think that his music, first of all, I think he'll hopefully one day be an outstanding musical theater writer because he really knows how to do a melody. They're just such, such good songs. And if, if I were a major label, I would offer him all the money in the world and lock him away and only let him write for, for my artists because I think he's, he's incredibly talented. Dan Hall, thank you for coming on Song Surfing. You picked some great music. It was fun to get to learn more about you and your current projects. So where should people go check out everything that you do? Yes, yeah, so uh, my main podcast, In the Key of Q, is available on all the usual podcast providers, so Stitcher, iTunes, uh, Google, all, all the usual ones, Spotify, uh, and the website is inthekeyofq.com. And uh, reach out to us, always use the hashtag queer music, because it's always really great to hear your thoughts and hear other people's thoughts about the episodes and about other artists. And of course, if there are any queer artists listening to this i'd absolutely love to hear from you uh and you can reach out to me on all the usual social medias dan hall thanks again and then song surfers this is matt fischel with soldiers see you dan thank you very much john take care
Thanks for listening to another episode of Song Surfing. And oh my gosh, thanks to Dan Hall for being on the show. Man, that was a, such a fun talk to have, and I even enjoyed editing it. And I never enjoy editing these interviews, uh, but it was, man, it was just a lot of fun to listen back to that. All right, so Dan produced the Freddie Mercury documentary called Freddie Mercury, The Final Act. That's out on BBC Two. So I just Googled it and it was the first thing that popped up. So if you, if you search Freddie Mercury documentary, um, but BBC, uh, bbc.co.uk, uh, it's posted on the website. 
And if you're listening the day it comes out, it says you've got nine months left to watch it before it won't be available anymore. Uh, or it's behind a paywall, maybe. Uh, so go check that out. And else you don't want to miss is Dan's podcast, In the Key of Q. Season two of In the Key of Q will be starting soon. So this is the perfect opportunity for you to go back and binge the first season if you're just jumping on board now. The music you're hearing right now is by Patrick Moonbird, and the opening theme of the show is by Josh Wien. You can find his music under the name Wien Solo, W-I-E-N-S-O-L-O. So everything that was featured today, as well as the opening and closing music, you can find the links for all of that on the episodes and show notes page of songsurfingpodcast.com. Instagram and Facebook users, come join the fun. Just search for at songsurfingpodcast. And last, before I get out of here, if you haven't left a rating and review on either the Apple Podcasts app or Podchaser or Podcast Addict, or I'm sure there's another one I'm forgetting, I have all those linked in the episodes and show notes page, and um, it would really help me continue to improve and tweak and grow the show. So thanks if you take the time to do that. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs> I turned into Count Chocula at the end there. Okay, see ya. <laughs>